Welcome to Don't Feed the Trolls. But today, we're going to feed them. That's right. This episode is all about plants versus meat. But first... But first, don't read the trolls. That's right, our email segment where we pick one email every week to read. Sometimes we don't. I love when Nate picks them, though, because they're usually the Bigfoot ones. Uh, This one comes from Mike. Hey, guys. I love the podcast. I work night shifts and keep up to date with your stuff. I wanted to let you know that I didn't really have much interest in Bigfoot, despite living in Canada, before listening to your podcast. The first episode piqued my interest, but it was the actual encounter in the second Bigfoot episode that really made me want to look more into it. I found another podcast called Sass What, which I find very interesting. They tell stories and explore the topic from a skeptic point of view. I just wanted to let you know in case you haven't heard of it. Here we are giving a promo for another podcast, Nate. Uh, don't judge it based on the first episode. You have to give it a couple. Who knows? Maybe the host could come on your show for the third Bigfoot episode. Yeah, we could do that. That'd be fun. I thought at least Nate would find it interesting, and who knows, Matt, you might find it interesting too. Anyways, thanks for the great content to help pass the night. Keep it up, Mike. If thanks, uh, Mike. you don't know what we're talking about, we did a couple episodes on Bigfoot, but no new patrons this week. No new patrons. But if you want to support our podcast, you can go to uh, trollspodcast.com, click the donate button, or you can go to patreon.com slash trolls and uh, support what we're doing. We love it. Yeah. Get access to all the cool stuff we have there, like our Troll Talk episodes, exclusive for our patrons, and a bunch of bonus stuff we've posted up there. So, to our topic of the day... So, veganism, vegetarianism versus what? What would the alternative be? Just the alternative, carnivore? Just, just car- carnivorism? Omnivore? <laughs> I don't think people eat exclusively meat. Cavemen might have eaten exclusively meat. Yeah, maybe. Bear grills. <laughs> bear, bear grills. I feel like he was always just cooking something he shot out of a tree. I mean, that's for that's good for TV, too. Well, it's the hottest trend. You can read books like The China Study or see movies like Forks Over Knives, Cowspiracy, etc. Uh, the main argument is that the meat industry is bad for people, humans, the planet, etc. Don't eat meat. End of story. Animal cruelty photos. And you get super guilty. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I can say that I watched all those things and read a lot of that literature, and I went vegetarian for a year. Wow. What yeah. were the movies that kind of stu- uh, stuck out for you? Uh, Forks Over Knives and The China Study just kind of like made me think, oh, you know, what's going on? What's The China so, Study about? The China Study is just what they look at. It's kind of like a brief uh, overview of where people get cancer and their diets, and they try to make it sound like it's meat based but so there's tying, a lot of factors th- in there they're tying cancer to a meat based diet yeah yeah or animal animal based diet so, so it could be like eggs or dairy yeah too. yeah animal proteins are bad for the body and plant proteins are good for so, the body, so i think you disagree that animal proteins are bad for the body i just think it depends i really feel like the health of the animal is the one important factor because places in China, you don't know what the animals are eating. You don't know what they're feeding them. And people think, oh yeah, well, you know, we can just feed them genetically modified corn sprayed with Roundup and the meat's (laughs) 
the meat's fine, right? It's the same thing. Yeah. But there's a lot of studies to show that, no, you know, like, the leaner the cow in terms of it's eating, like, fresh green grass, it's, uh, that's why the grass-fed movement's so big right now. Hmm. Because there's lots of science to say that if the cow is healthy, then the meat is healthy. If the cow right. is unhealthy, then the meat is unhealthy. So, so you watch the China study, and it ties uh, can't porks over to, knives. Or sorry, you, you know, that that's the one that made you become a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. And you're a vegetarian for a whole year. Yeah. And then what made you stop being a vegetarian? Uh, I think I just did more research. Didn't necessarily feel any better. Hmm. Started having more conversations with people who were kind of had animals and and uh read a couple books um read a book on milk hmm. um read it just yeah read different things and talked to some different people and kind of realized like oh there's this the world of microorganisms is sort of kind of what i got exposed to the more microorganisms there are in the soil equals benefits of all things that that depend on the soil so like you want your plants to be growing in a biodiverse soil they say that the, you know a lot of the soil now is just depleted from minerals and stuff hmm. and that's why we have a lot of health problems because they just grow the same thing over and over again and then they spray synthetic chemicals down to try to fertilize the soil they don't use the natural um, yeah. sort of the way that they used to do it is they would rotate crops and they would add cover right. crops and they would do other things to help the soil get better so if you don't have uh, a good microflora i guess in your gut in your side your body getting that from the soil and from other animal products then you're you know it's just as bad so it's complicated honestly so you're I, not just anti-meat because you know the meat industry's bad what you're saying is there's a responsible and sustainable way that's good for the planet to raise animal products and bring them bring them to market so, yeah. so I guess it's understandable that people would respond to a very harmful industrial farming, industrial uh, meat complex or whatever you want to call it. They would respond to that by saying, no, we're going to protest meat altogether because we want to shut you down. We want to, you know, do away with this. Can you understand that, that stance? I don't know, like company, I guess PETA, PETA's hard. PETA's a very, <laughs> a very, I don't know, they, they sort of attack a lot of people. Yeah, so. they go after people. I, I kind of like that about them. I don't, I don't agree with a lot of their views, but I like that they're spunky. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, I think the thing is, is yeah, I, I'm definitely down on the like big ag because. Yeah. You call it big ag, big agriculture. Michael Weissman said, you know, cheap food is the devil. And the reason she says cheap food is the devil, I think, is because you have to cut corners every step of the way to have cheap food, which means you have to spray it with pesticides and you have to spray it with synthetic chemicals and you have to mass produce it and you have to mass produce it over and over and over again in the same dirt. And you strip the environment and you strip the soil, right? and humans ultimately just lose. It's a lose-lose situation. So I think big ag, big agriculture, when right. it comes to meat, is probably the worst because um, you have these animals and feedlots crapping corn all over the place, poop everywhere, and it just runs into the river. So you have a, a highly concentrated pile of feces 
and mm-hmm. the cows aren't healthy. They're not eating green grass. And I, I mean, I, I guess if you just if you just imagine it, it doesn't even sound interesting or or healthy or right. good or the way that I believe God intended animals to to live. I mean, well, they, and, and how we're supposed to coexist with nature, right? Like, yeah, not destroy and rape and pillage the earth, but to yeah. to be a part of the ecosystem and to be a part of. Like the pasteurized animals graze, they they cut and expose new grass to sunlight. They trample seeds deep into the ground. Well, pasteurized is different, but <laughs> pastured, pastured. Sorry, pastured. <laughs> My bad. That's funny. It's early in the morning. If anyone can tell. Hey, <laughs> that's an easy mistake to make. Pasteurized, pasteurized, pastured. What is the difference between pasteurized is what happens to milk, right? Yeah, Lewis Pasteur, I think, is the name of the guy that I... invented the technology of zapping it to kill bacteria. Right, right. So it had nothing to do with pastures. You're against that, too. Well, I think it's actually based on old old practices that we no longer have, and you have a lot of states now lo- lo- uh, lobbying for to be able to drink milk that's raw because it is a live food. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a healthy person, um, you should be able to be able to drink that live food and get more benefits. If you zap it, it actually makes it more dangerous from what I've read. That's why you have all these listeria breakouts because the milk can't really defend itself uh, if something some foreign contam- contaminant gets into it. Hmm. So basically you kill everything. You kill the good and the bad bacteria. But the reason they do that and the reason they did that is because, historically speaking, they used to feed cows distillery mash from the from the whiskey uh, distilleries. So everything and, that was, like, left over. Yeah. And then they were in these barns, and they were knee-deep in, in their cow crap, and they were being milked by whoever very sloppily, and then they would send this milk on trains into the city, and kids were getting sick and dying. Right, and that's why they came out with the vitamin, the grade, grade A, grade B, grade C, grade D milk. That's why right. there's like there's different grades of milk. Well, the the distillery mash milk was like the last of the barrel. It was like they could zap it, and they could you could they say that in this book I read you could see the bacteria float to the surface. It was like a film. It was like so gross. <laughs> but basically, it was a it was a sort of an easy tool to right you know, solve a, solve a problem. And that's what we do, right? Instead of, oh yeah, we have put all these chickens in this chicken house and they get sick. Oh, let's just throw uh, antibiotics in there and then we can not right. worry about them getting sick. Well, that's mm-hmm. starting to break down. Yeah, and that stuff gets into your eggs and gets into your meat that you eat and, you know. Causes all kinds of health causes problems. Causes all kinds of problems because then you can be immune to antibiotics. So if you have a, a health crisis or an infection... If you eat a lot of that meat, I mean, sometimes that can affect the way that antibiotics work on your body, right? Yeah. So let's talk about the three types of vegetarians, because I think, you know, a lot of people can broad stroke vegetarians or vegans and just be like, oh, that's just, you're a weirdo. But I think there's actual, like, good reasoning for a lot of people's uh, motivation to become vegetarian. Sure. So there's moral... Uh, political and nutritional and it, it sounds like the moral vegetarians they kind of believe it's possible to eat a diet that includes no animal suffering so they don't want animal deaths they don't want animal suffering 
um, and they, they feel like a moral obligation to protect life. And obviously, they're killing vegetables, but you have to draw the line somewhere, right? Yeah. I can actually get behind that one a little bit, personally. Like, I, the, I don't know. It's like recently, the more I kind of expand my view of the world, the more connected I feel to things. But, I yeah. mean, the nature of humanity is we are living creatures and we live on the death of other living creatures. I mean, that's the nature of life, right? We're all just dead stuff that was passed yeah. on, you know, like the soil is dead stuff. You know, the the seed falls from the tree and another plant grows out of that. So that's the circle of life. So I think what people don't realize is that, like, you know, if you leave a pasture or you leave the land and you don't have healthy animals grazing on it and crapping on it, um, it doesn't aerate the soil. The soil quality doesn't get better. Right. That's what people don't realize is that animals play an important part of the soil quality. Just like sure. all decomposing elements going into the ground. So the more biodiverse, more animals that are crapping on areas and moving around, but they're eating the stuff that is going back into the soil, it creates a better, healthy environment. And in fact, there's lots of science that says that it removes CO2. So you have healthier really? soil. I mean, yes. because the second, the second uh, vegetarian, the political vegetarian would say that... Uh, a lot of the carbon comes from the meat industry. The, the the vast amount of herds and cattle that we're raising that are yeah. putting out all this CO2 into the air in, in at an unsustainable rate, and it's causing various kinds of environmental Yeah, and I would say that it is if, if you have cows that are specifically, you know, eating corn, eating garbage, eating chicken poop, eating sawdust. Well, it's just the vast amount. Guts. The amount of... of cattle you know the amount that we consume is so way beyond what is required that it's destroying land well, yeah so, so it's like, cheap so cheap food you know that's the thing it's like cheap meat so yeah if you go out and spend you know if you want to eat meat every once in a while and you go out and spend some money you know i think like the average person back in the 50s they said ate like eight ounces of meat a week wow and now it's like eight ounces a day or yeah, so, I mean, I, you've seen the comparison with like McDonald's in the '50s and what um, what a McDonald's meal looked like. It was like a tiny little cheeseburger, like a yeah. tiny little side of fries, and then it's just like been supersized over the last several decades. So that we have this demand for it, and that's why it's there. And I guess yeah. people who are political vegetarians would say, "Let's stop demanding meat." Yeah, I definitely cheat meat. Yeah, the cheap meat. Well, yeah. I mean, a vegetarian would say meat altogether, perhaps. Oh, sure. But there is an omnivore uh, who is responsible, who is also um, getting the expensive meat. And then there's the nutritional vegetarians who think that animal products are the root of all dietary evil and lead to heart disease and cancer. Hmm. Um, and your, I guess your, your rebuttal to that would be that, yes, um, unsustainably raised, uh, irresponsibly raised animals do lead to dietary evils and heart disease and cancer. But if they're correctly raised or responsibly raised, they don't, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's just like you as a human being. If you're putting good fuel in the tank, good things are going to happen. So, right. yeah, if you if you put bad fuel in the cow and then you eat that cow, then hmm. you have 
t- tons of health problems. That's why heart disease is crazy because people don't realize that like it's a it's an insane number of how how much more lean the meat is from a cow that's just been eating green grass all you know all its life. So what do these feedlot cows eat? Uh, they eat them. They feed them all kinds of shit, dude. They feed them candy, crab guts, limestone, chicken shit. Sawdust, what? corn. They feed, they feed them chicken shit. Yeah, they'll 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 basically, you know, because there's a lot of you know seeds and stuff, and they'll grind it up and they'll put it in basically like in like a dog. Food Wait, why 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 would they them. feed them candy? Like what? That seems expensive. Well, it's uh, it's, it's it's high calories, and there's a lot of leftover candy, and like oh. it doesn't. You know, there was something in the news the other day about cows being fed Skittles. I don't know if you saw that. So it's like candy whatever. waste from like a candy factory. They'd buy that up and feed it to the cows. Yeah, and it's Gross. just it's just high ca- calories, and it's just they'll you know they'll they don't even take the pack. I read one article. They don't even necessarily take the plastic off of the candy wrappers. They just poop it out. So, <laughs> so basically, I mean, and this is the same thing with farmed fish. Farmed, they feed chicken shit to farmed fish. So it's like humans getting in and going, oh, we'll help. The circle of life. We'll take the chicken shit. And we'll manipulate it, and we'll toss it in, and then they'll eat. They'll eat the poop, and they'll create food. But like there, there's a natural balance that happens in nature, and then we yeah. can come alongside and partner with that. But we're not. We're like, no, we're gonna do this factory. This, you know, we're gonna do this this way. This is a resource. We're gonna use that, and then that ends up environmentally potentially destroying certain subsections of our earth right yeah yeah i mean i think mad cows i think mad cow disease comes from feeding cows actual like dead cows cows that die and feed it back yeah so and then um, they become zombies it's you know what we could talk about this a lot but we should bring (laughs) on our guest lier keith the author of the vegetarian myth food justice and sustainability and see what she has to say because she seems to be more of the expert on this, but uh, let's bring her on. Welcome, Lier Keith, to the podcast. Uh, just up front, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your work? Yeah. Um, the book I'm most famous for is called The Vegetarian Myth, and I wrote it because I had spent 20 years as a vegan, um, and I only stopped being a vegan because my health collapsed completely. Hmm. But hmm. when that happens to you, it's nobody gives up being a vegan easily. It, you know, your whole world is kind of left in the rubble at that point because nothing makes any sense. Like, why didn't this work? It was supposed to. Um, So then you spend a few years scrambling around trying to figure out who you are and what your place is in the universe and what it all meant. Um, And in that time, I was able to revisit a lot of information that I had shuttled to the side. You know, it was stuff that I had certainly come across in my ever never-ending search to figure out, you know, what humans had done to the planet and what the nature of that destruction was and what was the worst kinds of destruction and all of that. And as a vegan, you know, you can, you can have this very fundamentalist mindset. 
And so anything that pointed the needle toward agriculture, um, I immediately couldn't really engage with because that meant that the way I was eating was not in fact saving the planet. It was in fact part of the destruction. So there was this whole realm of information that I was not able to look at fully until I stopped being a vegan. And at that point, I went back and really rethought everything. I did a lot of reading, a lot of research, thought about my own life experiences, and came to some very different conclusions than I did when I was a vegan. And I ended up having to write a book about it because it was just overwhelming. And I also got very tired of having the same discussion over and over again. <laughs> you know, because after an hour, hour and a half of the same, you know, start from square one, right. what is soil, why does it matter? Um, and, you know, you have that discussion over and over with vegetarians and vegans. And they get very upset, and that's understandable because I did too. Right. But you can only have that discussion so many times where you think, there are thousands of people who want this information. Even if it's difficult emotionally, they're looking for it. They are the people who care about the planet. They do care about animals, and they want to know. They want to know if they're doing the right thing, especially yeah. as the diet starts to fail them, which it will. That is inevitable. It's just a question of how much emotional struggle they're going to go through to acknowledge that to themselves. So I wanted to be able to hand them the tools to say, you know what, people have already figured this out. There's an, I'm 52 years old. There's an entire generation of us who did this and ended up with more or less you know, damage. And these are wow. the reasons why it doesn't even hold water politically or even ethically. Way bigger information. So all of that came together in a book. And I'm very pleased that I wrote it because it just it was such a relief to just think through my own kind of life process, my own you know, kind of intellectual sort of growth, you know, in writing a book, it, you really have to look at it all. So it was, it was very sort of healing for me, but I also feel like I've reached a lot of young people who otherwise would have gone down an ultimately destructive path for no good reason. So I'm, I'm just, I'm happy to have been part of other people's journeys in, in a way that I wish someone had been there for me. It, it seems like, uh, you know, a lot of the information out there is, uh, from when I look, st stand back and look at it, is like being vegan or vegetarian saves the planet. That's like what everyone's preaching now, um, and it seems like you're saying something different than that. I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on. Yeah, that. I mean, I think that's one of the main reasons people get into it. Um, that and um, you know, you see the horrible pictures of factory farming, and that's indisputable. It's just terrible stuff. So then, you know, you're handed this entire package of well, if you just eat uh, plant foods, um, it'll all be great. Um, and the problem is that that's, it's not a big enough framework. They're not actually addressing the roots of the problem. And this goes back 10,000 years. And what we have to acknowledge is that there's an activity called agriculture. Um, and that is the most destructive thing that people have done to the planet. It's the most destructive human activity is agriculture. We've essentially skinned the planet alive. So you have to understand what that is. You take a piece of land and you clear every living thing off it. And I mean down to the bacteria. And then you plant it to human use. Hmm. So you've got like millions of acres of land across this planet that should mostly be either forest or grasslands. They should be dense with species, with plants, with animals, with bacteria, um, you know, with mammals, reptiles, birds, everybody. Like the entire host of life should be there. And they're not. Yeah. And they've been removed for corn and wheat and soy and rice primarily. And now it's something like 40% of the, what they call the primary production of the planet goes directly to feed humans. And like another 40, 50% is indirect production also goes to humans. We've essentially extirpated life from this planet. To sustain our life though, right? Like, is there a, is there a way in between? Uh, because isn't it just the population that is demanding food? Is there a way to do it correctly? Well, here's the problem. Um, the moment that you take up agriculture... 
um, there's two things. One is that it's drawdown. So it's an inherently destructive activity. You will destroy your land base. And this means that you have to go out and take your neighbor's land so that you can survive. Hmm. So this is why agricultural societies end up militarized. And they do each and every time. Okay, that is the pattern. You've got this bloated power center surrounded by conquered colonies until the entire thing collapses. And it collapses somewhere between 800 and 2,000 years. No civilizations ever lasted longer than that. Literally the length of time until the soil gives out. 2,000 hmm. years, nothing makes it longer than that. Hmm. Now, we've added fossil fuel to this. This is what happened in 1950 with the beginning of what's called the Green Revolution. Um, we figured out how to take you know, oil and gas and turn it into feedstock nitrogen, i.e. usable nitrogen for plants. There's this gigantic yeah. just upsurge in the amount of production per square acre. And that's why, is because they figured out how to take this incredibly dense stuff, oil and gas, and turn it into something plants could eat. So what happens then is this huge explosion, not just in food, but of course in the human population. So from 1950 onward, the human population quadruples. Nobody in their right mind could actually think this is sustainable. Wow. Lapse is inevitable, right? Right. So... The oil and gas are going to run out. All they did was extend the basic problem of all agricultural societies. And I want to say, in contrast, for most of our time on this planet, and that's two and a half million years, we didn't do agriculture. We did some version of hunter-gatherer. Mm -hmm. And whether that's horticulture, whether that's pastoralism, those are all, you know, kind of, I mean, there's some variations there, obviously, but it's basically the same idea. You leave in place the, the ecosystem, the living biome around you, you leave it in place, you take your food from inside it as a humble participant, mm. rather than imposing yourself across it, which is what agriculture is. I love the ideal of that, but the realist in me is screaming, there's no way we, we can sustain the human population. Like people would starve if there weren't these, if there weren't agriculture. Is, it, is there a way to, to do that and sustain human life? Do you think? Yeah, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you three things there. Number one, this collapse is inevitable. Um, hmm. And that's no fun to have to face, but it's been true for every single agricultural society, and there have been 34 so far. Every single one of them ends in collapse because, again, it's based on drawdown. You're destroying your land base. Eventually, the whole thing is you're going to hit zero. Okay, hmm. It's a declining returns every single year until, in the end, all that's left is salt and desert. And you can go around the world to all the agricultural areas, and that's what you will find is desert. Um, look at Iraq. You know, look at, at huge sections of India and Pakistan, China. All the places where agriculture began um, are just desert at this point. There's nothing left. The Sahara Desert is mostly a man-made phenomenon. Northern Africa was um, oak savanna, and some of it was actually forested so densely that uh, the sunlight never hit the ground. And a lot of it was destroyed for Rome. Rome conquered that whole area and stripped it dry. Uh -huh. It's a destructive activity. So this collapse is going to be inevitable. And the problem is, if every institution on the planet would recognize that and start to pull back, we could have a very soft landing. I mean, we could repair what we've destroyed and bring our numbers down to something reasonable that the planet could support. That's not physically impossible. It's not biologically impossible. We understand what the problem is. Um, it's politically, that's the problem. Like, okay. are these institutions going to do something about this? And the answer seems to be no, because they won't even acknowledge the problem. So that's number one. Yes, we are in vast overshoot. And that crash, while it's inevitable, could also be averted. You know, if we do nothing, it's inevitable. But if we could do the right things, no, we absolutely, right. we could have, you know, a, a population, a number that um, could be sustained on this planet very easily. 
a basic first step for a lot of people is is not consuming so much because don't we consume three times more than we need? We probably, I mean, in in the rich <laughs> nations like the United States, we in our, probably yeah. serve fifty times more than we need. It just seems kind of crazy. The kind of just the level of stuff out yeah. there to buy. Just when you look at like you know the year nineteen hundred, there were only eight hundred things you could buy. <laughs> it's just like what? I, I can't. Yeah, you just can't even imagine how things have expanded since then. It seems like you know there's a. I think I saw this on a. It was like a food. It was like a food blog, but it was talking about how there's like this pyramid, and, and and the way we have now with the agricultural system is man's on the top of the pyramid, and he and everything kind of goes down from there. As opposed to there's a circle of life, man's somewhere in the circle, and he's not dominating it, but he's not you know being passive about it either. It seems like that that's the way that we have to think about the world that we're participants in it. We need all these animals crapping on the ground to keep the soil going. And, uh, I had a lot of arguments with some friends after that. There's this documentary on Netflix called cowspiracy. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> that thing. It's done yeah. more damage. Ah, I yeah. Love, I, I love Lear's opinion on this. I just, <laughs> please, please roll your eyes more verbally. No, it's just I, everybody believes it because they don't understand. They don't understand the nature of the natural world. They don't understand what life is and how it works. Hmm. That it really is this incredibly complex web of relationships that are so complicated we could not ever understand them. Our brains could not possibly conceive how complicated it is. If you take one tablespoon of soil, there's over a million living creatures in that one tablespoon. And each right. of those is constantly interacting with the others. Um, to make more life in one way or another. They're either, you know, producing or degrading, and everybody's eating somebody, and it's just like you said, this great big cycle. That's one tablespoon. Right. Spreading right. that out to a forest, to an ocean, to a grassland. How could we ever understand the complexities in there? We're just one tiny little part of something so vast. Well, I, I, I was reading about... Oh, go ahead. Well, it's just when I look at the cave paintings and some of the earliest art we ever made, you know, there's this amazing moment where our brains suddenly got big enough and the first thing we did was say thank you. If you look at the cave paintings, what you find over and over are these just extraordinary artistic visions of the animals that gave us life. Hmm. It's the megafauna we hunted. Nobody's painting mice. <laughs> They're painting the right. animals we ate. And literally those animals were the ones that gave us brains big enough that we wanted to say thank you, that we can understand ourselves as part of this cosmos and that compelled yeah. us to then express that because it's such an the gratitude is so overwhelming. Like, wow, I'm alive. Isn't this amazing? And look who's making it possible. So I'm going to say thank you. I have to express something about this because yeah. so beautiful and so overwhelming. You know, those emotions of just that, that prayerfulness and that thankfulness. And that's what they did. That's the very first art we ever made. And that was, it was the megafauna. And that's what we painted over and over again. That's what we carved. That's what we drew. And it's just all about that participation. It's a way to turn back and say, wow, I've got this great big brain now. I'm going to say thank you for it. So what is the modern um, equivalent of participating in that and saying thank you? What, do you what, what does that look like today for people now? Okay, I'm going to walk you through two different scenarios, and we'll see which one makes more sense. Okay. So you've got an acre of land, okay, and that acre has a lot of grass on it. It's a prairie. It's some kind of a grassland, and every square meter of it should have at least 25 different plants. Okay, that's how dense with life it is. And there's mammals, and there's reptiles, and there's ground-dwelling birds, and there's little tiny microscopic things that are doing that basic work of life. Underneath it all, there's these incredible roots. Uh, the grassland, the prairie roots are 
they can go down 25 feet into the ground. I mean, it's an extraordinary system. One third, two thirds of the life of the prairie happens underneath. Hmm. Uh, like it doesn't happen above ground; it happens underground. And the reason that they're prairies and not forests is because there's not enough moisture. If it if they were wetter, they'd be forests, but they're drier. And so all of these creatures have figured out how to survive in a much drier place. And grasses are one of the ways they do that. They store a lot of their life forces underground in those roots. So it's this extraordinary thing. And they have these very, very long roots. And those roots do a few things that no other creatures on life can do. One is they provide a soil for the water. So every time it rains, I mean a channel for the water, every time it rains, the water can physically enter the soil through those channels. Without those roots, the water has no way to penetrate into the soil. Mm-hmm. And you can see this when it rains. You know, any place that's bare ground, you see the runoff. It puddles, it pools, and then it just destroys the surface of the soil. And if there's any slope at all, it drains off into the nearest river and kills the river with that silt. Hmm. Um, whereas if you know the same amount of rain falls on something that's got permanent cover on it, it's absorbed. And you can walk across it, and you don't sink into the mud up to your ankles. Um, it's alive. So the water table is restored. You know, it's recharged every time it rains. And the roots and the soil themselves hold a lot of that water. And so as the summer wears on and it gets drier and drier, that moisture is then you know, drawn back up to the surface of the planet and used by the entire living community. So that's how everybody else is still alive, is because those plants with those root systems and that good soil is able to store that water. So that's one thing, very important, the water. But another thing is that those really deep roots can actually, they get down into the bedrock, and with help from bacteria... They degrade the rock. They literally eat the rock. And all of those minerals are then drawn up into the bodies of the plants, eaten by animals. But all of the minerals that you and I depend on to stay alive, that's where they originate, by and large. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's some ocean things involved. But for land life, yes, this is very, very important. That's where the minerals come from. You and I cannot digest rock. Okay, we can't do it. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. plants with the right bacteria can, and that's what they do. Um this is only true for perennial plants, the annual crops. So that corn and wheat and soy that's created all these problems, their roots are nowhere near as, as long. They don't have time to make roots that are that long because they're annuals. They only live for one summer. And nobody has time to get that big in one summer. So their root systems are very short, um, nowhere near as extensive, and they can't do this work. They can't absorb the soil, the rain, and they also can't reach down and, and provide that, that mineral. Okay, so... Here you've got your acre, and it's got these plants on it, and the plants are mostly perennials, and there's a whole bunch of them, and there's all these other creatures living there. They all know their role. They're all doing something to either produce or degrade. Everybody's eating. And on top of all of this, you've got a large ruminant, and let's call her a cow. It could be a bison. It could be whatever, but let's just say it's a cow for now. There's a cow, and about one acre is what she needs to survive for a year. So she's on her acre, and she plays a really important role. Because in the summer, um, on grasslands, as it gets drier and drier, the bacterial life um, starts to basically hibernate from the surface of the soil. It's too dry. It can't survive. Some of it goes underground, and it'll stay there kind of dormant. But what keeps the life cycle moving on a grassland in the dry, dry season is the, are the ruminants. Because where the bacteria also goes to live is inside that ruminant. And they're called ruminants because they have a rumen. Okay? They usually have multiple stomachs, and their stomachs are very different than ours. They are vast that's a bacteria. So when a cow is eating grass, she's not actually eating the grass. She's harvesting the grass for that bacteria. Who's actually eating the grass is the bacteria inside her stomach. And they have the capacity to break it down, to break down the grass. You and I cannot eat cellulose. You can try it if you don't believe me, but feel free to go eat grass for breakfast and see how well you do. You have no capacity to do that. But rumens 
ruminants have this um, incredible relationship with grass because they've evolved together. So these are the creatures that do it. So this cow is carrying around all these bacteria. Uh, that's their habitat is inside a cow. And they know how to digest the cellulose, and they do that. And then in exchange for feeding them, she then eats them. So what the cow is doing is trading in really poor nutrient cellulose for very, very rich, um, nutrient-dense bacteria. So she's eating the bacteria in the end, and they're all keeping each other alive. Um, and that's the only thing that's breaking down nutrients on the surface of the landmass um, during the dry season is ruminants. Without ruminants on grasslands, it degrades into desert and very quickly, and that's why. Because there's nobody else who can do that work except ruminants. So that's why there's always ruminants on grasslands. Right? That's why there's bison, you know, across the this should be bison across the United States. Those were the yeah. you yeah. know, the, the ruminants that kept it going across the Great Plains. That's what I tweeted at Cowspiracy. I said, if there were forty million buffalo on the plains, then we would have had global warming, you know, hundred you know, three hundred years ago or four hundred years ago, however long it was. And because uh, that's their big claim is just there's like 40, 50,000 or 50 million cows now and they're contributing. All the cow farts are contributing to global warming. And I was like, well, he's not thinking about the historical fact that there were so many bison on the plains. It was literally black, they said, you, you know? know. Oh, yeah. Oh. You, could, you could sit on a rock for four days, for four solid days and watch one single herd thunder by. That's how many animals there were. It was, wow. you're right, somewhere between 40 million and 60 million bison. And we've traded them in for 30 or 40 million very sick cows. But there's no possible way that that's the problem. Because like you said, there were that many ruminants before and the climate wasn't being destroyed. All right, so yeah. here's our acre. And we've got our cow <laughs> and she's eating her grass. And from year to year, you could come back to this and you would only find more life. You would find denser soil. You would find more branches in the evolutionary tree. You would find, um, you know, more resilience. Um, this could go on until the sun burns out because it's all powered by sunlight. There's plenty of moisture. Everybody knows how to store moisture for when they need it. Everybody's got a role to play. And year by year by year, all that happens is the soil just gets better and better. And that means there's more life for everyone. And the nearby waterways are healthy because the soil is protected. It's not washing away. The water table's recharging. And everybody has a home. So all the birds that migrate have a place to go. The ground-dwelling birds can stay there. There's reptiles, there's mammals, there's everybody. And there's this ruminant at the center of it who's a keystone species, keeping that cycle alive throughout the summer. And you can add humans to the picture because you always need predators on every single living creature. There's somebody for everybody to eat, and that's our role. We take the sick, we take the young, we take the ones who aren't going to survive, and we eat them. And then at the end of the, our lives, we are eaten in turn. It's like the soil eats us all. You know, at the end of the day, none of us can get out of this cycle. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a really beautiful thing. That's hmm. the problem. Like, we've forgotten how much beauty there is in this. Be humble in the face of it. Like, you've got to live. It's amazing. And then you're done? Great. Somebody else can have my body. And it, whether you like it or not, it's going to happen. Every last molecule is going to be eaten by somebody. And so you can, you can fight that and try to think, well, you know, you could put me in a cement tomb and hopefully it won't happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> And it starts happening within 30 seconds of your death. Some of those bacteria already are starting to eat you. So Right, and, that's and it. On, a, on, on a macro level, you know, we're all just made from atoms, you know, that stardust yeah. billions of years old, yep. you know. So it, it, it happens on the micro and the macro.
So that's our one acre. And that's what, that's, that is the pattern that nature has created. You have animals integrated into perennial polycultures. And these are systems that can change over time as climate shifts, as things happen. But life is incredibly resilient and it'll find a way forward. So that's our beautiful one acre. And that includes a human. And at the end of a year, you know, on that one acre, you can have that one ruminant and you can slaughter her and feed, feed a human. Um, and then the next year, there'll be more ruminants and more humans and more grass and more everybody. So that's our, our good acre. Now mm. we're going to take another acre. All right. What do we do with this acre? Well, we clear all the life off it. Okay. We remove all the plants, all the animals. Nobody can live there anymore. We've exposed the soil. The moment we do that, the soil starts to die. And for a while, maybe 50 years, maybe 100 years, maybe 800 years, we're going to try to go corn on that one acre. And every year, there's less soil. There's less life. Um, of course, all those animals that used to live there can't live there anymore. There's a very, very few animals that can try to survive in that monoculture. So there's going to be mice. Um, there's maybe some crows. But that's really about it. Maybe a raccoon or two will wander through. But that huge palette of life is gone. Okay. So now every year, your corn, you're going to have less and less corn as well because the soil's being degraded. Um, the water table dries up. So even if there were some nearby trees, they're now dead because there's not enough water for them to survive. All that soil blows away every time, mm -hmm. washes away in the rain. It's going to clog the nearby waterways. So now there's no more fish either. Everybody's dead in the stream. Um, it's just death and destruction from beginning to end. And then you can take that um, one acre of corn and you can harvest it and drive it off somewhere into a horrible cement city, essentially, in which they keep tortured cows. And these are very sick animals, very miserable animals, and you can feed them a completely unnatural diet, which is to say the corn that you harvested from that one acre. You give it to that cow. She's really miserable. She's really sick. There's going to be holes in her stomach. Her liver is rotten. Kill her. Fine. Feed her to humans. Fine. Those humans get really sick because nothing is right about that meat. The amino acid profile is wrong. The fatty acid profile is wrong. Mm -hmm. Everybody's miserable from beginning to end. And at the end of the day, the system is going to collapse. The people are, are you know, eventually, it's, there's not going to be any corn coming off that land anymore. It's just too degraded. And the people get shorter and shorter and sicker and sicker. And this is the archaeological record over and over and over again. Um, and then it ends in collapse. And the last proteins in the cooking pots are always, guess what? Human proteins because people turn to cannibalism when they're desperate. And that's where it ends. <laughs> this is, I love, I love that stark contrast. <laughs> And there it is. You've got the way of life that's about that participation, where you let life do its thing, and you're part of it. And then there's the other, where you are dominating the entire thing. Think you know better. Think that you have a right to come to that land and destroy all that life. But in the, at the end of the day, you can't. I mean, it might work for a few generations, but eventually it's over, and you have that desert where everybody's dead. Do you think humanity has the ability now? It feels like, I don't know if it's just me getting older, but... It feels like there is um, a rise in self-awareness. People, it just seems like generationally it's it, we're acquiring more self-awareness about our need to dominate, our need to control, our need to monetize, our need to be at the top of a chain as opposed to part of a circle. And And do you think that humanity is getting to a point now where we're able to be aware and address this seriously or are you just saying it's going to be we're all going to die no i think there's a tremendous struggle right now on this planet i think that we have some very powerful social movements that have figured out 
from very from many different angles, you know, what the problem is. But I think it points to exactly that, that we have this hierarchical model that's based on domination. And so whether it's humans over the planet or rich people over poor people or white people over people of color or men over women, we have these horrible hierarchies that are, you know, ultimately supported by violence and, you know, terrible atrocities around the world. We all see that. Um, and also the planet is really being pushed to the edge. Um, you know, there are plenty of stolid conservative scientists who are like, we've got maybe 10 years, we've got maybe 20 years, but, you know, with the climate coming to pieces, with mass extinctions, 200 species a day going extinct, the oceans are going to be devoid of life by the year 2030. Devoid of life, the oceans. I mean, it's like hard to fathom how this is even possible, but this is where we're headed. And I think a lot of people see that and they, they feel the horror of it and they feel the trauma of it and it's hard not to be overwhelmed. Um, but there are definitely people who want to fight, who want to fight for the things they love, mm -hmm. the people they love, the animals they love, the places they love. Um, and putting all that analysis together, I think, gives us a lot of many tools because at least we can understand the problem. Now, whether or not that push is going to be enough, um, considering how much power is on the other side, I don't know. Well, that's why yeah. I think it's self-awareness is so key because the, the problem, understanding the problem, the problem is us. The problem is our needs and our, our, our need to dominate, our need to control, our need to manipulate, our need to monetize. Um, are you looking at like social structures, political structures, like capitalism, just that ideal of, yep. of yep. monetizing things and free market. And then if you just let it go, it works and everybody's happy. I mean, there's so many ways to come at this. You go internal, you go, what, what am I doing? Who am I? How am I connected to this problem? And then you can go external and go, it's political. And then you go, it's environmental and it's spiritual and it's everything. I mean, how, do you, how does one even start to address it is my question. Well, I think that we all have, we all have our own gifts and our own um, capacities, our own talents. And so some people are really good at lawyers. Some people are really good at being... Um, farmers. Some people are really good at being artists. And, you know, it's not for me to say, like, what somebody else's passion is. But, you know, whatever your passion is, you've got to direct it at the forces right now that are against justice and against sustainability and against compassion on this planet. So, I mean, we all have our work to do, but um, it just seems to me that it's not, I don't think it's that hard to figure out what's gone so wrong. I think that our big problem is really emotional. You know, I don't think it's that hard to notice. It's like, yeah, there are these giant institutions that are headed completely in the wrong direction, and yeah. we're going to have to raid them in somehow. We're going to have to figure out how to get our power back because they took it from us. Yeah, the Monsantos of the world. It's all for their profit, and it's very short-sighted because without a living planet, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. You can't eat it, you know? You can't breathe it. At this, There may not be oxygen in 100 years. Like, that's how bad it is. Right. So. It's like you watch you watch The Walking Dead, and it's like this post apocalyptic thing, and everybody is just killing each other over food, and that's 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 the reality of it, you know. Like your money is not going to do anything for you. It's like well, I think there's a reason that those movies are so popular now, is I think that it, it's in the popular consciousness that that things are bad, and that you know when societies collapse, it doesn't necessarily look good, not for mm. a long time. So I think that there's it sort of bubbles around in people's subconscious that's like we are headed for the brink here. You know, is is there any is there any chance of hope? But yeah. I I'm not giving up. I think that it's I I think there's every chance we could still pull back. There, these are human created problems. These are not biological problems. These are not problems of physics, you know, or chemistry. 
not about the laws of the universe in any way. These are human created problems. It's supply and demand. We can fix these problems. Yeah. Yeah. My my wife and I, we bought some land and we've kind of seen the writing on the wall. At least I feel, I I feel a lot like you do. I, I feel like, you know, you have to, people have to start getting back on the land and being part of it as opposed to just sitting in cities and consuming you know, you kind of, I think there's enough land for everybody. I think people's priorities are really different. You know, I see so many Facebook fights, people arguing about all these different things. And I'm like, I don't know if these, these are issues. Like people don't really post about the fact that bees are dying, you know, in, in crazy numbers and, and bees are responsible for 60% of what we eat and people don't even care. It's like, they just argue about all this other stuff. And it's, I don't know. It just got to the point where like, People should own beehives like they own dogs. You know what I mean? Like, no, I completely agree with you. That seems to be the environmentalist movement. If you're going to be an environmentalist and go out there and preach it, you need to have a beehive in your backyard along with a hundred other things that actually help as opposed to just a cute little chihuahua in your purse or whatever. I don't know. So. <laughs> There's an entire province of China where um, all the pollinators are dead. There's not a single pollinator left. And so for them to eat, they have to pollinate by hand every single food crop that's out there. And it's it's 500 million years of evolution that's been wiped off the well, face of the earth. How ridiculous is it that we have these, now we have these little micro robot bees oh, that we're like, oh, we'll save it with these robot bees that, that cost millions of dollars to make and then create all this waste and garbage. Like, no, how about we just save the bees? Like, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> just address that. It's, we have this idea that empiricism and science will eventually fix our problems when it's, it's more of a, it's not a, that's still dominating the issue. Yes. We have to submit to fix the problems. We, don't, we, can't, we can't overachieve and get some new technology that's going to help us farm better. That just creates more and more issues. I completely agree with you. And there's this, we're supposed to be warned about human hubris as we're growing up, like the whole story of Icarus flying to the sun. Right. Or, you know, pick your religion, pick your folktales. But there's, I mean, isn't there always that one of those, you know, the huge warnings that you're given as you're growing up, the stories you're supposed to absorb is like, be very careful because humans can be prideful and it doesn't end well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we think that we are, you know, out of the constraints of life, out of the constraints of, you know, our physical capacity, we think we are like gods. We are not. We can't do that. And and the, the results are never good. I have those arguments with people about genetically modified foods, GMOs, um, where people just think, you know, that, that they're on the side of science that thinks that we need GMOs. We need science to be genetically altering these things to uh, to advance humankind. And I'm just like, do you, do you realize the Pandora's box that you're opening and you have no idea the ramifications down the line. And basically now it's already open. Do you feel like genetically modified organisms are going to be a part of us collapsing faster? Yeah, well, that's the terror, isn't it? Uh, it's like, who knows? What they've unleashed on the world now is like there's genetic pollutions forever. I mean, you can't get those genes back out once you put them in. And you've crossed species barriers that... Those are boundaries that have been there for millions of years. Like those forms of life knew what they were doing. We cannot possibly have the wisdom of 40 million years. We can't. Life does have that, you know, but we don't. I mean, we're just humans with little tiny brains. Like we, there's no way we can understand what's going on. I was watching Chef's Table and it was a Mexican chef and he was talking about the different types of corn they use to make um, to make their uh, tortillas. And 
uh, he was making tacos, like fine dining tacos, out of these different types of corn that are like almost extinct because of GMO corn and the like. And he's trying to fight. He's like, this is a travesty. I mean, this corn's been here for millions of years. And who are we to think that that we can just wipe it out? And, uh, you know, a lot of these communities um, in these regions of Mexico still have it, but they're like hanging by a thread. This ancient corn is almost dead. And it's just like the bees and it's just like the birds and it's like the oceans and how we overfish. I mean, what, I, like it's just it, I can look at it all and go, this is overwhelming. I don't, I don't know what to do. Is there any practical thing that like <laughs> I can do, you know, like just practically I feel convicted. You're blowing my mind. What can I do about it? Well, you know, on a personal level, I, one of the most important things we can do is to find the farmers in our region who are doing it well. And that is to say to find the grass-based farmers um, who are restoring topsoil, you know, restoring life to the land and producing good food. Every single centimeter of topsoil that they are producing is carbon that's being sucked out of the atmosphere and stored permanently. And for, if for no other reason, you know, find the grass-based farmers in your region and support them. Um, because with every bite you eat, you are sequestering carbon. Um, some of the st- statistics, some of the numbers on this are actually really hopeful. If we could take even 75% of the world's trashed out grasslands, which have been trashed for agriculture, let's be, let's be very you know, upfront about that. It's corn and wheat and soy that have done this. Um, but if we could return them to some kind of grassland, some kind of pasture land, um, it would only take about 15 years for us to sequester all the carbon that's been released since the beginning of the industrial age. 15 years is all it would take. That's how good grass is at building topsoil. Hmm. So the number one thing is find those farmers and support them. Um, and there's some really great resources online. It's actually really easy. Um, you can go to eatwild.com, and there's a woman named Joe Robinson who's written a number of really good books about this subject. But you can go state by state and just, you know, you can look who's doing this well in, in my area. And you can go directly to a lot of these farms and just buy what you need. You can go to farmer's markets and find a lot of it. Um, you can pressure your local co-op, your local grocery store, even the bigger chains, and ask them to, to have grass-fed and pasture-raised food um, as much as they can. So grass-fed beef, you know, pasture-raised chicken, all of that should be in every store at this point. And, I mean, we shouldn't even be having the other kind. It shouldn't even exist. Like, why is anybody feeding corn to cows? It doesn't mm-hmm. even make any sense. Why yeah. are we even growing that, you know, that kind of stuff to start with? But, you know, even putting that aside, why is it being fed to cows? I mean, the whole thing's insane, and it's a, it's a model based on, A, fossil fuel, and then, B, um, you know, h- how do you make this? There's, there's no morality left in it because the, the whole morality is, well, it's, the profits are what matter. And, indeed, you can make meat really fast by feeding corn to cows, but it's crazy. It makes them sick, and it's just all of this was made possible because of that surplus. I mean, factory farming did not exist before 1950, and this is the exact reason. And this is why a lot of the animal rights people have it backwards. Because they think that corn is being produced to feed it to cows, and they're completely wrong. It's hmm. surplus because of the Green Revolution. And it ended up getting fed to cows um, because it's so cheap. And the reason it's so cheap is because gas and oil are cheap. That's, that's the, that is the flow. Well, and, it's, and it's subsidized by the government. Yes, and there's not a single farmer that would stop producing corn. Even if every one of us stopped um, eating factory-farmed meat, it wouldn't stop it because that's not the driver. And so there's this very naive idea of, well, it'll stop if we all stop eating factory farm meat. And it's not true because that's not the driver. Um, and, of course, I believed that for 20 years. But it's, you know, if you go out into farm country, you see that that's not the truth of it. So that's one of those things that I wish people would understand. And I know it's complicated. I mean, farm policy is not an easy thing to dig your teeth into. But we've got to get involved. I mean, it's not going to change if we don't get involved. 
So whatever your passion is about this, whether it's, you know, nutrition, whether it's global warming, whether it's animal rights, you know, whatever it is, like there's so many ways to get involved, find the other people in your region who are working on these issues and, you know, join with them, you know, put your labor and your love. You said eatwell.com is a good resource. Eat wild. Eat wild. Eatwild.com. Yeah. Eatwild.com. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. Um, and you can just click on your state and then it'll show you who is doing grass-based farming where you live. Awesome. And you can buy, so, mostly you can buy directly from them, which is really wonderful because you can go to the farm and see for yourself. Wow. <laughs> look at all this soil they're building. You know, the, it's lush and it's green and it's beautiful and the animals look so healthy and happy. And the, you know, the farmers will talk to you about what they're doing and how they do it. And you can be very, um, you can, you can feel happy about it and you can know that you, you are helping the planet by just buying this food. You've done a good job at, I, I don't know whether whether or not it's alarmist or not, but at least convicting me of, <laughs> of what I need to do. So I appreciate that. Um, our podcast, we're called Don't Feed the Trolls, and, and we talk a lot about um, du- dualistic thinking and either or black or white binary thinking, you know, and, yeah. um, and how that can often lead to just finding your identity in a tribe and just never, never being open to the other side, or, or maybe that there's another truth or another reality. And uh, you, you mentioned in, at the top of, uh, of the interview that you were a fundamentalist in a way. And I thought that was fascinating because we're using uh, kind of terms that are, that are, that are like religious terms, um, to, but it's about our identity um, in veganism or vegetarianism. Yes. And, it, and you can be so staunch, whether, whether you're hyper-religious fundamentalist or a hyper-vegan uh, fundamentalist or whatever active thing that you identify with, that's part of your tribal identity, that you can't, that you're no longer open. And, it, and the pendulum can swing with, with duality because you're going from one side to the other. And at some point, um, like you said, life happens and you're forced to break that down and deconstruct that identity which it seems, you know, you were a vegan for 20 years and then suddenly it didn't work anymore. And I just see so many parallels in people's lives with politics, with faith. Um, You're raised one way, you're taught one way, or maybe you adopt it in your early 20s or something and and that becomes part of your life and then then it just doesn't work anymore and and then you're forced to tear it apart. And then it's... Like you said, it's dramatic, and that's kind of Nate and I have both been through that—that uh, that dramatic change of like, oh, I don't know what I believe about this anymore, and what, what, what do I hold on to, you know? And then you reconstruct, and I, the way I like your story—I'm I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry, but the, the reason I like your story <laughs> is because you you reconstruct it into this uh, not not just screw it all, you know. You're still very much an activist. You're still very much passionate. But you're passionate about um, about a more holistic approach than just simply being black and white or dualistic or fundamentalist about veganism. Um, do you see that parallel at all between like it seems almost religious how people get into this um, and are all out for it and and to the point where they don't even think about it or can't question it? There are very cult like elements in veganism. I'm not, I wouldn't go all out and say, oh, it's a cult, but it very cult-like elements. You will lose your friends if you stop being a vegan. Hmm. Um, you will lose your friends even if you say you're thinking about not being a vegan anymore. I lost friends over not being a vegan. And I've been in a group after group that has been absolutely wrecked 
because the vegans wouldn't stop. You know, it's not a vegan group. It's not even an animal rights group. It's a different kind of group entirely, and it doesn't matter. They come in and they just demand that everybody has to eat their way and everybody has to prioritize their thing, and the group just can't function anymore because of their bad behavior. Right. And they don't seem to even understand that, even just from the like the perspective of how do we get people to join our movement, like you're failing utterly by behaving this way. Right. Yeah. Yes, there is a very, very fundamentalist kind of mindset that goes with this. And Part the same people would hate this. religious fundamentalists. Yeah, it's like no, they I would know. just they would look at, you know, Westboro Baptist Church or, or, yeah. or people like that and be like, what evil, evil people and then go out and kind of behave in similar fashion, uh, you yeah. know, throwing arrows and darts and, and disrupting people's lives who believe different things than them. Or, you know, you'll read these little messages and then somebody will say, oh, it's like every time I go out in public, I get in a fight with someone. I'm like, why are you doing that? <laughs> like, you're even admitting yourself, like you're compelled to get in a fight with people. Like, just back the fuck up. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I, so many people said to me after I stopped being a vegan, they're like, you were like the only nice one I ever met. But like, I stood out as the nice one. Because everybody else is so miserable in that world. Part of it is, I hate to say this, part of it is the nutritional deficits of being a vegan. When you don't have enough cholesterol, you don't have enough fat, um, and you don't have the right amino acids in your diet, the, the right proteins, um, your brain just isn't able to function. And it's hmm. really hard to keep a stable mood state without, especially the fat, in, in your in your brain. It's Your your brain itself is almost 80% fat, and um, it's, it's preferred fuel is fat. And you're eating these foods that just are wrong. It's nothing but carbohydrate. Um, so the macronutrient level does not provide the brain with what it needs. And this is why there's various studies from all around the world that show that vegans have anywhere from two to five times as many mental illnesses as other people. And it's strictly nutritional. Um, so they do end up with a very inflexible brain and with a lot of depression and a lot of rage. And some of that is based on you know the kind of echo chamber effect. But some of it really is just the food they're eating is making mm -hmm. them crazy. Hmm. And he's making them violent. And it's, you know, they don't want to hear that, but look how they behave. It's, it's predictable how they behave. Oh, man. I don't know what we're talking about when we say the vegan police or that obnoxious yep. vegan. Like, everybody rolls their eyes because we've all met that person. And it's the same. Like, there's so few that aren't that way. And it, it really is. There's a huge chunk of this. It's just biochemically, this is what happens to your brain. Right. Um, right. Get the right fuel. Vegan, CrossFit, atheist, walk into a bar. How do you know? <laughs> Because they won't shut up about it. <laughs> They'll tell you. <laughs> that whole thing. Yeah, no, it's 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 stupid when it becomes a caricature. And I understand the intent. Like I I can see myself, you know, as I've deconstructed my worldview, you know, growing up, um, and kind of it's become more holistic and more expansive. I can see all viewpoints now and I can see how we're all connected. Um I mean my my, my daughter brought home a sunflower seed in a Dixie cup. She got it from preschool and I was very skeptical that it would work. But like life happened and this thing sprouted yeah. up overnight and go it grows yeah. like an inch and a half a day. And I've yeah, seen it day. I've yeah. seen it move. I've yeah. seen no, it move. You yeah, like, you can hear them growing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I can see myself so connected to this. It, yeah. it, it's 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 life, you know? And so I could see myself morally going, I don't want to eat any animal that I don't know and maybe I don't want to eat them at all. I can see that. I can see my life kind of trending towards that. Do you think that's something that happens with like age or do you think, I guess, I guess some people close off with age, but I just kind of want to be more open to the idea that like I'm connected to things and you are connected to things and all things are sentient 
And this is the wisdom of pretty much every tradition around the world until modern times was that the universe is alive, the cosmos is a living being, and every creature that you see, whether it's somebody like us or somebody not like us, they all have that spirit. They all have a way that they are alive, and that means we can all communicate because we all have that little bit of the sacred in us. So whether it's a tree, a rock, a river, the raindrops, you know, the antelope, whatever it is that's around you, um, they all, they're all alive in the same, in some way that's similar to me and you. And that means that the, the world is full of other beings into which we can enter a relationship. And when that closes down, then only what's possible are, you know, objectification and relationships of exploitation. But it's the shutting down that makes that possible. Um, now, the opening to all of that does not mean that we don't kill to eat, because no matter what you eat, you are killing something. And I think in those much older wisdom traditions, it, there's no higher value put on a bison than on, you know, the blue stem grass or whatever. Like, it's all the creatures are part of each other. They understood that, that there's, you can't just pluck one out and say, well, this one's important, but the others aren't, because they all depend on each other. And at any given instant, they're all becoming each other. And that includes us. You know, like someday there's going to be a fox baby that has some of my cells in her little <laughs> Like, it's just the way it is. There's going to be birds yeah. that have little bits of what was me once. And that's just going to keep going until I'm completely dispersed. But, and then I'll reform some other way. Like, it's, you know, you get another chance. Like, we're all part of this life. Um, and I think that, that that's the bigger wisdom because I understand that. I mean, I got stuck there when I was 16. Like, oh, my God, I don't want to kill. I don't want to kill. I can't kill. Animals matter. I don't want to kill. And I didn't understand that. You know, it wasn't just about what was dead on my plate. It was what died to get that food there. And if I was eating agricultural foods, the answer was the entire planet is dying to get you that food. Right. It just right. didn't yeah. that way because I didn't know that I didn't know the difference. I didn't right. know. Right. Nobody had told me. So it's easy to take that compassion and that willingness to enter into relationship and dead end it, you know, into a very simplistic kind of, well, no death. And and the only deaths that matter are deaths of creatures very much like me in these certain ways. And that's pretty much what the vegans do. Um, and this is the right impulse. Like you should care about life. You should care mm -hmm. that there are other creatures on this planet and that they have their own reasons for living and that they have their own beauty and their own magic. That's all good. And we should be compassionate and we should care about justice. Um, but the part they're missing is that like, no matter what you eat, something's going to die to feed you no matter what it is. And some of those creatures are going to be animals, whether you eat them or not, they're dying to feed you. So the bigger question is, you know, it's, is this the death that's killing everything? Or is this the death that's just a part of that cycle that I have right. to accept and be humble before? And that's it. Those are really our only oh, options. It's beautifully said, beautifully stated. And we thank you for your time today. We're going to let you go because we don't want to hold you off from uh, <laughs> from your work. But um, where can people find you online and what's the best way to discover your work? Where, where do you want to point people? So I have a website, learkeith.com, and my joke is that's really easy. It's just my name. Yeah. And that's a joke because I have a crazy name to spell. So it's L-I-E-R-R-E, -R -R -E, Keith. Um, if you can't remember that, like if you're driving and you're like, oh, I want to read more, the easiest thing to remember is Vegetarian Myth. That's the name of my book. I'm the only person who wrote that book. If you type in Vegetarian Myth into Google, you will find me immediately. You'll also find a really, lot of evil stuff about me. You can go there or not. I don't care. But if you want the book, that's where you go. And you'll find my website and you can find my book or not or listen to it online or whatever. So awesome. that's the best place to find out. So exit awesome. question. Have you ever done like the Enneagram personality test? 
Oh gosh, years ago. I don't remember what mine was, but I remember that was a big. Everybody loved it. We might share a number. I like. I I just like the way you talk. (laughs) It's very entertaining, and uh, I feel like a a kinship. So I love it. Well, Well, I know Mike Briggs. I'm INFP. So. Oh, there you go. I'm an Mm -hmm. ENFJ. So that's that's way off. <laughs> that about wraps it up. Thanks everyone for listening to Don't Feed the Trolls. Tell your friends about us. You can email us at don't email the trolls at gmail.com, uh, trollspodcast.com, all over the internet. Uh, that was Liara Keith, and she's awesome. Check her out at liarakeith.com, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Sweet. Yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you. All right. We'll, we'll let you know when it posts. Very good. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye.